We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. This week we have Chris Gonzalez. We'll be discussing NFTs and crypto in the esports and gaming space. Just as a disclaimer, nothing here is intended as legal advice. It's all the information for educational purposes only. Chris is the CEO of Community Gaming. Community Gaming is an all-in-one platform offering esports infrastructure to new and experienced tournament organizers. The company enables players and game developers to create and participate in tournaments with scalable blockchain payment technology. It's also an angel investor in many crypto gaming companies. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Justin. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So to start, you know, tell us a little about your esports and gaming experience. What was the first game you played and how did you get involved in the esports and gaming business? Yeah, so I've certainly been a gamer my entire life. Uh, before jumping into competitive gaming, I was playing uh, a lot of NES, a lot of N64. Uh, most people probably don't know this, but StarCraft was actually released on uh, Nintendo 64. So uh, I have vivid memories of playing StarCraft with one of my best friends when we were young. This is like 9, 10 years old. Uh, definitely wasn't playing it correctly. We would just build up you know, huge armies and then attack each other at the end. But that was, that was definitely my entrance into the Blizzard, the Blizzard ecosystem. And uh, then, you know, fast forward to, um, you know, high school and college days, uh, really high school days, I like to say November 2004 was the greatest month in game release history. Within about a two week span, World of Warcraft was released, Half-Life 2 and Halo 2 all came out within a few a few weeks of each other. And so, you know, those games uh, obviously all uh, were a huge impact on their their respective genres. And so I didn't play WoW immediately when it came out. I started playing, um, you know, pretty much like religiously around a year later. But Halo Two was was my really entrance into the the competitive world of gaming. So I was never good enough to quite go pro, but I, I would go to the MLG events. I was extremely, you know, highly ranked on on matchmaking. A big fan of Final Boss, you know, Walshy and, and the Ogre Twins. And and so yeah, Halo Two was the the first game that I was. Uh, super competitive in i remember my group of friends we would we would literally run home to go play uh double team in, you know lockout midship so halo 2 and then uh world of warcraft spent a lot of time uh playing those games so that was those were really my my first games that i got uh, incredibly uh, engulfed in 
So it was like at those early MLG events, you know, obviously, like you said, it kind of bred to what we have today. Did you kind of know that that was kind of the trend of where everything was going? Definitely didn't know, you know, gaming would quickly become, you know, the largest entertainment industry, uh, you know, less than a decade later. Uh, it was much smaller back then, right? The prize pools were, you know, 50 grand, right? That was like a, that was a huge prize pool back then for, for Final Boss, straight rip-in. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I remember, you know, meeting Walshy at like a GameStop. It was like a meet and greet. And like, to me, that was so cool. But like, no one else would have, you know, really uh, pictured them as like celebrities or stars, right? So uh, definitely didn't know how big it would get, how, how quickly uh, it would get that big. But I was always, uh, I always know that gaming was going to be more than, you know, just as my mom said, a waste of time, right? To me, it wasn't a waste of time. And then with the advent of streaming and content creation and now things like play to earn, which we'll talk about, um, it's become, it's become so big. So I'm glad I, I stuck with it. hundred percent. Well, you know, it's definitely interesting to see where it's kind of gone from, like you said, these five figure prize pool to, you know, 30, $40 million one. So how'd you get involved in the crypto and blockchain space? How'd you initially get involved in that? So in college i actually wrote my thesis on on bitcoin and this is in uh, 2014 and the first time i ever heard about bitcoin was in 2013 i was uh i was studying for my series seven so i was going to go this traditional finance route and um get my license and and become a, a stockbroker so i was i was a stockbroker in the sense that in 2013 i was making 500 calls a day at at a at a local stockbroker in Westchester. So like boiler and, room. Yeah, like boiler room, right? Like I wasn't licensed to to be the one with, uh, giving you know agreeing to the investments, but you would make 500 calls a day, and you would get them to agree to have a call back from from your principal, and that was you know it was you could think about making 500 calls a day, trying to get past the secretary, speak to these high net worth individuals. Um, it was kind of it was kind of boring, uh, frankly. I, I enjoyed trading stocks and options myself. And so um, one of the, uh, the core memories I have of, of Bitcoin was you would watch Bloomberg all day, essentially, when you would make these calls, right? You'd have a script in front of you and you'd kind of be like half paying attention. And so you'd just watch TV because it was just right in front of you. And uh, I remember seeing the Cyprus banking crisis was the first time I saw Bitcoin on TV and the price was spiking uh, due to you know, people not being able to access their bank accounts, access ATMs. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, and then a few months later, uh, this, this place that I was working at the time was right near Wall Street. I would walk home to the subway and I saw this place called the Bitcoin Center right next to the New York Stock Exchange. And it was actually a surprisingly big venue. And I, I went in and then I started to kind of go in on the weekends. They had all these events there and they were like educational events. And they had uh, this really cool live auction they would do where, you know, some guy would get up on a stage and be like, I'm selling it for 200. Who's buying? And and so uh, after a while, I was like, this is, you know, this is incredible. Like, this is so much more interesting than kind of going this traditional, you know, Wall Street career path. So I, I basically stopped. I didn't take that. I didn't end up taking the, the Series 7 and essentially uh, dropped out of, of that uh, path and uh, caught the brain virus, as I like to say, right? If you're really into, you know, central bank philosophy and, and the stock market, uh, you're, you're probably going to get really interested down the rabbit hole of crypto. So uh, started working at the Bitcoin Center um, as a volunteer, helping with the events. This is, this is around mid-2014. Uh, and so I was doing so tons of research for my thesis, my college thesis, 
and then also meeting all of these people who are now crypto OGs at the Bitcoin Center in, in 2014, right? So this is pre-Ethereum, right? This is, it was just the Bitcoin industry back then. And yeah, it went on to, to, to meet people like Joe Lubin, who I eventually um, went on to work with at Consensus. He founded Consensus. And so, yeah, that was, that was the, the good old days um, back before everyone knew. Right before know, I even it, knew what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's the origin story. Um, early, early Bitcoin days. Amazing. So like I said, you know, it's, it's interesting. You've kind of been ahead of the curve. Do you have the lottery numbers? You were at MLG before it became something. You're looking at Bitcoin and blockchain before where I feel like every other word is that nowadays. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little about community gaming. How, what is it and why was it formed and, you know, who's the intended user? Yeah. So, uh, in 2017, I was working at consensus. This was, a uh, a company focused on Ethereum, building out smart contracts and, and companies in, in that ecosystem. But at the same time, I was running in-person gaming events in New York City, where I'm based, on the weekends. Right? So this was a passion project of mine and, and some of my co-founders. And we would run events every single weekend. These would be grassroots tournaments, you know, 50 to 100 people. We would partner with different venues. So we didn't have our own venue space. Uh, one week, it would be at like a WeWork or a General Assembly co-working space at a bar and a restaurant for more social events and, and land centers. There was land centers popping up, uh, OS studios and, and more recently Brooklyn. And so we would uh, drive audiences to all these different venues and we would cycle through all the big games. So it would be like Hearthstone was one of the first games we hosted events for. And then it became a lot of League of Legends and Super Smash Brothers. So a very wide kind of breadth of, of different style of games. And um, when the pandemic hit, all of, all of our events got shut down. And uh, I was at Consensus at the time, and we were doing a lot of consulting work. I was traveling um, in 2018 in the summer, traveled all over Asia and in, in Germany, and was doing consulting. I was, I was talking to game developers about use cases of NFTs. This is 2018 when no one cared about NFTs and really knew what it was. So I was you know, on stage explaining what NFTs were, uh, different use cases for smart contracts within gaming and and how they can you know how tokens can be used within game economies and and so when all the events got shut down um it was either going to be kind of like the the end of cgny community gaming new york or it was a time for us to essentially double down and that's what we decided to do we built out this this all-in-one platform that allows people to easily create their own tournaments less than five minutes it helps them onboard into the Web3 space. You don't need to have any blockchain or wallet knowledge. And it facilitates instant payments. And these, these payments and the prize pools are held in escrow and smart contracts. And so typically, these, the, all these terms, you know, wallets and smart contracts are kind of daunting for the average gamer. So we, we've done our best to abstract it all away, uh, make it extremely simple to sign up, create your own tournaments, and be able to pre-configure dozens of payments. So it was really to solve the three major pain points we saw when we were our, our, a grassroots organizer in New York. It was around the setup time. It was too difficult to spend 20, 30 minutes setting up a tournament. So you can set up a tournament in less than five minutes, including pre-configuring payments. It's the competition management software itself, right? So everything from the brackets to how players get matched up, how they communicate, Discord bots, um, how they report results. But the big one is really the, the the payment pain point, right? You you can frequently get paid out weeks or months later in a traditional online event, and so you know we saw a lot of horror cases of teams and players not getting paid at all, 
or getting paid out, you know, on a 90 day invoice cycle. And, and so we wanted to, we wanted to change that. So it took a lot of the learnings from consensus and we built out what is now communitygaming.io. And this was in the first half of 2020 when everything was kind of completely shut down. We just went heads down. My, uh, my CTO and co-founder Hader was also working at consensus. So we left consensus. Consensus became our pre-seed investor. Uh, knowing we were going to you know, build out this this payment technology, um, this whole blockchain stack underneath uh, this very simple, easy to use tournament platform. So yeah, that's how I got started, and uh, we're trying to onboard millions of mainstream gamers into earning their first crypto and being able to run their own tournaments. Okay, so let's break down a little bit on that. So how does it work? Because I know you know with licensing for tournaments. So those are certain games that you already have these licenses in place, or is it more on the community guidelines? Is there a set limit on the prize pool you can offer? So some of the big developers, they have this $10,000 kind of threshold, right? So if you're running small community tournaments, you know, $500, $1,000, that's kind of our average prize pool. Uh, you don't need a license to, to run um, tournaments for that. You can, you can stream it on Twitch. You can run it. Uh, it's once you get above that ten thousand dollar threshold for like Blizzard Riot, they they both seem to have synced up on that that number, uh, knowingly or not. And so we've run a few tournaments that uh, that are above that threshold, and so we've had to work, you know, had to work with Riot on that. Uh, but the vast majority of tournaments are very grassroots, right? And this is not just a platform for us to run our own tournaments, which which we do. Uh, it's really made for grassroots organizers around the world, and in particular, uh, we're we're really expanding and focused on emerging markets in Latin America and parts of Southeast Asia. So frequently these, these organizers, uh, they don't have the resources, they don't have huge teams that can, they can run large tournaments for. And so we, we help empower them. We help supercharge their events either through our grant program and getting them set up and able to, to use our platform. So um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, you don't really need licenses for these, these smaller community events. Okay, so there's kind of this license of limit where it's like this is the certain price limit and your prize pool can't be larger than that or in this license world. Correct. So yeah, so I know recently you guys got a you know a really nice investment. So tell us a little about that, how did that come and how are you guys using the resources to help grow the company? So I've been uh I've been working on this series A raise for for many months now. Um and I guess I should start by saying we raised a seed round in July 2021, uh, from CoinFund and Animoca, Multicoin, a bunch of great investors. And we quickly started um, hiring extremely quickly. This is when we started the expansion into Latin America and, and parts of Southeast Asia. And so we were hiring, um, we're, we're now up to over 40 full-time people. So we went from, I believe, eight at the beginning of 2021 full-time to, to over 40 by the end of the year. And so it became quite clear that we needed to raise again uh, to to keep up with the momentum and, and how fast uh, the user base was growing and, and our, our headcount. So um, late last, like Q4 of last year, started to really get serious and was uh, traveling to different conferences. And uh, we ended up uh, really connecting with SoftBank. SoftBank, they have a, a Latin American fund and we, we are um, about 10 strong now in Latin America, running a lot of events there for uh, for instance, with Moonton, with Mobile Legends and uh, Free Fire. So there is just a tremendous amount of opportunity, some great gaming talent, uh, but there's kind of a lack of infrastructure. So we, we kind of uh, really were aligned on this vision of, um, in particular, Latin America, building out 
the infrastructure further there, focusing there, uh, driving millions of new people to earn crypto. And so uh, SoftBank is our lead investor. And I'm really proud to say we also brought in a huge group of other uh, participants that are joining in on the Series A. And that includes great gaming funds like Bitcraft, Griffin Gaming Partners, and some of the, the biggest players in the, the blockchain space like Animoca, who's been an existing investor and, and followed on, and uh, Multicoin Capital, uh, Shima Capital, Binance Labs, Hashed from Korea, and uh, CoinFun, of course. So uh, there's, I'm really proud of that, that group we've put together. And I, it's not announced yet, but I guess by the time this, this goes out, it'll, it'll be announced. Well, congrats on that. You know, it's really amazing. I know when we initially met, you were definitely, you know, working on some unique stuff and to see, you know, how things have transpired in the last, you know, kind of year or two years, it's, you know, pretty amazing. So what would you say was like the biggest hurdle of kind of implementing this right now? And is it more the acceptance of, you know, this payment technology or, you know, what are you guys experiencing? Biggest hurdle. So, I think education is still a very big hurdle. Uh, it's one that we're excited to tackle. And we've actually started a foundation, um, a nonprofit called the Play to Earn Foundation um, to, to help tackle this in a big way, lots of different initiatives. Uh, but for the average gamer, being able to understand how wallets work, you know, your private keys and how to set it up, understanding difference between layer one and layer two networks, how to swap tokens on exchanges, how to convert to your local currency. Um, it's, it's a lot, right? It's a lot that, that you don't just learn it all in you know, one day, right? It, it takes time. And, um, and frequently, uh, our, our talented team of community managers and admins, you know, will we'll be teaching people one-on-one -on -one and through Discord, but that's, you know, that's not scalable. We want to be able to educate people, uh, educate the masses in, in a big way. And so um, that's why we're going to be extremely focused on um, not just online courses, but being able to reach out to gamers that are earning their first crypto to teach them, um, like I mentioned, how to use the local exchanges in their market, their local markets to convert to their local fiat currency, uh, how they can use wallets correctly. Um, we create wallets for the users and, and they're non-custodial, uh, but eventually they're, you know, they're going to run into other wallets, right? The MetaMask of the world. Uh, the phantoms on on other blockchains. So um, beyond just blockchain knowledge, we think it's really important as these play to we're gonna we're gonna get into play to earn in a second. But as these play play to earn games proliferate, a lot of young kids and young adults are earning are earning through gaming for the first time, and maybe they're earning the most they've earned you know in in their life. And so it's important to also teach about financial literacy, right? How to how to manage a budget difference between you know savings and investment how credit works because uh, we find a lot of these these play to earn uh, stories are incredibly you know heartwarming people being able to afford a laptop for the first time or help open up a small business and so you know it's important to teach those kind of money basics as well so those are some of the core tenets of the foundation is of blockchain uh, education uh, financial literacy and then just general kind of social impact initiatives as well Amazing. So I, I definitely know that that, you know, all the stuff you're mentioning is definitely new to a lot of people and definitely a lot of people need those crash courses, you know, maybe myself, but you know, it's kind of shift a little bit. So tell us a little about, you know, play to earn gaming and just really the benefit of NFTs and the blockchain esports and gaming. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, play to earn is a fairly new phenomenon. You know, the back in 2018, there was there was very few, you know, significant blockchain games back then, right? Games that were uh, that was mostly indie developers back then. Axie Infinity is the one that everyone's heard about. Uh, I love the Axie team. They they were the pioneers of, of popularizing this term. Uh, and there are so many new games, AAA quality games coming to market this year over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and and they're really honing in on these core principles of play to earn. So just to kind of break it down. First and foremost, it's this concept of open economies, right? These open systems where players can have this enhanced ownership, owning their assets, and their the ability to monetize their time. If you take games today, you know, some of the most popular games in the world, like Fortnite, Hearthstone, you have an account where all your assets are locked to, right? You, you, you spend a lot of money to get these skins and, you know, it's, it's a cosmetic-based economy and it's a, it's a status symbol. You want to collect these skins because you're invested in the game socially, uh, but you, you don't have the ability to, to trade these assets, right? Aside from games maybe like CSGO as certain exceptions, the vast majority of games, the, the game developers are their own central banks. You know, there's no transparency about how many of these skins exist how you know how the inflation rate of their their tokens and and there's just um there's not there's not a lot of transparency there so this idea of open game economies um allows players to understand how much of each asset has been created right you have the metadata kind of you can almost think of it like a serial number and all this metadata attached to the tokens the fungible tokens and then the non-fungible tokens right the nfts so those are the core principles and um while Axie was the first and still the largest play-to-earn game, you're, I'm starting to see first-person shooters that are in alpha or beta and extremely high-quality trading card games. You know, Skyweaver is one that I'm definitely going to call out. Full disclosure, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an angel investor in them. Uh, but even if I wasn't, you know, it's, it's per- objectively, this is an extremely high-quality game. You can think of it like a mixture between Hearthstone or, and Magic the Gathering where um, you can earn silver and gold bordered cards, similar to how you can have gold cards in Hearthstone, but you can trade them, right? So it's, it's a purely cosmetic enhancement, right? It's not a pay to win type of game. And you can just collect those to have an incredibly cool looking deck and show it off as a status symbol. Or at some point you may churn out of the game, right? You may want to sell some of your, um, your assets that have increased in value try a new game or just, uh, you know, shift around in the marketplace. And you can do that, right? They, they allow you to, um, to, to liquidate your assets, to trade them. Uh, you can build tools on top of them, like deck tracking stats and, you know, price tracking uh, analytics platforms. And so that's also part of it, right? It's this idea of extensibility is a big term you hear in play to earn where the game developers are just more open. They, they want people to build experiences on top of the game. They want them to pull the data that's on the public blockchain and, and make use of it. You know, and, and if they have APIs, uh, most of them are either in the process of, or if even from the, the get-go when they have an API, they just allow people, everyone to use it. So um, we can get into NFT specifically, but that those are the core principles on, on play to earn. Amazing. So I, I think kind of, you know, breaking it down a little bit more. So it's kind of this marketplace within the game. And then what do you get from, you know, what's kind of the, currency you get is it something that is just specific to that game or is it like a bitcoin that's just more unanimous 
So I love Bitcoin and obviously Bitcoin is the OG, but most of all of this, uh, this action and the, this DeFi and smart contracts, that's all in the Ethereum based ecosystem and these newer blockchains that, that are not Ethereum, but they're, they're all smart contract uh, platforms. So, so Bitcoin is, is kind of has this narrative uh, of, of a digital gold and it's, it's obviously still the largest crypto. Uh, but all these games are being built on these smart contract platforms like, like Ethereum. And so you're earning uh, typically Ethereum-based tokens. So ERC-20 is, is, are what, they, what they're called. And um, they could be a native currency to the game. Like you, you, know, you think of like gems or diamonds. Um, so a, a, a cryptocurrency version of those. And if you take a game like Axie, for example, that has kind of pioneered this model, they have two crypto tokens. Well, they actually have three now, but two, uh, one is like the earning currency, SLP. And that's the one that you'll earn through competing in, uh, in the ladder, topping the leaderboards, matchmaking. They used to have it for daily quests as well for PVE. And then you have their governance token, um, both of which you can earn. And the governance token is more um, being able to participate in the governance of the future game features, different ways that you can earn through staking. And then you also just have NFTs, right? So NFTs can represent a skin, a purely cosmetic item. They could represent a consumable, right? Boosting some sort of stat temporarily. Um, or it could, it could be um, a powerful weapon, right? Like I'm personally not um, you know, in favor of just making uh, things pay to win, right? But that is, that is one route that some games can choose to go. And so an NFT can represent any, any one of those things. And an NFT, um, you know, maybe just to kind of define a non-fungible token, they're used to represent digital assets that, that are unique. So you can think of them as kind of a digital certificate that goes along with owning some type of assets. Digital ones in the examples I just gave, but it can also be uh, representing a physical asset. It can, you, know, you can use it for supply chain tracking. Um, you, you know, people like Nike are using it to... Um, be able to trade rare sneakers without necessarily having to ship the sneaker around. Uh, people just, you know, tend to trade sneakers on like stock X and stock X and stuff. And instead of just sending the, the sneakers everywhere, you could just trade the token and save all of that extra, you know, the, the shipping costs. And then finally, when someone does want to wear them, th that NFT would give them access to kind of claim the, the actual physical item. So um, that's what, you know, NFTs are these unique identifiers that come along with, with a digital signature on some sort of blockchain, Ethereum, Solana. And um, I, I'd love to get into kind of some of these, these NFT use cases. Is that, is that a good? Yeah. I'd love step? to hear more about it. I think it's, you know, interesting to see kind of the conversations with some of the, you know, the top game publishers and some of the indie ones and kind of how different people are using it right now. Yeah. So um, the first big one is this, this idea of, of provenance, right? Provenance, being able to track the ownership history. And so, of course, you can trade these. And then, so once you're trading them, uh, you're able to, you know, publicly verify on, on some sort of uh, blockchain explorer, okay, I just bought it from this person, this address. And so that has a lot of implications for the Twitch world, the esports team world, this idea of esports digital memorabilia, something I've talked a lot about. And so the example I'll tend to give is, you know, let's say someone like Shroud, um, is playing a game like BR1. BR1 is a is kind of a PUBG style game that I would imagine he would probably want to play when it when it releases. Um, and let's say he had a skin in BR1 that um, I think they have, you know, like alien skins, monkey skins. Let's say he has this monkey skin, and 
uh, you also have that 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 monkey skin. His is going to be much more valuable than yours, even if they're the exact same look. You can you can have that verifiable authenticity that this skin was traded to me, or I got it from Shroud, right? And so that's you know, the the real world analogy would be um, a LeBron James jersey, right? That's a piece of sports memorabilia. If you buy one off the rack, you know I can buy one off the rack at, at Target. So can you. It, it it's worth whatever it's worth, right? Fifty dollars. Um, but if LeBron gives you his off his back at, you know, at the end of, uh, uh the all-star game or something, that's worth a tremendous amount more. And you can, you can prove it, right? In this case, you can prove it because it was on TV and, and people see it. Uh, but with the blockchain, you can, you can digitally prove it through, through this, the trackable nature of it. And so that's provenance, right? That's, that's, uh, famous streamers, famous esports stars, pro players. I think you're going to start to see a lot. Well, once you start seeing the more high quality games and the esports teams get involved with them, uh, the NFTs that are owned by highly skilled players and, and highly popular streamers, um, that's going to become a really popular thing to say. Like, I don't just have this, you know, blue hat skin in this PUBG like game. I have the one that was owned by this championship player. And uh, part of that is provable scarcity, right? right. So, as this is the gun that he used to win the CSGO major. Yes, exactly. And so that that comes with a whole other amount of enhancements of metadata that you're not going to just have with like, for instance, like a CSGO skin that that theoretically has a, you know, I've seen similar things in CSGO, but this goes much deeper than that. And uh, like program, you know, programmability and all the metadata that comes along with with the timestamps. Um, so the next one is provable scarcity. So it's you know somewhat related, but this this kind of goes to the the idea of the game developer, right? While, while yes, we can probably trust, you know, the epics and the blizzards of the world that if they said there's only a thousand of some limited edition, you know, mount and wow, we could probably trust them, right? They're not, they're not likely to, to kind of lie about that. But that's not just universally true for all game developers, right? People, people could say, hey, this is limited edition. And people are people, right? Yeah, it, 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 you, you can't, the idea is you don't want to have to consider if someone is being dishonest, right? If you have the provable scarcity, if I can look up the contract that says thousand skins were created on this date, you know, here's how they, here's how they were spread out, right? They're, they're either concentrated with, you know, a bunch of the guilds or maybe they're, they're they have a wide distribution. There's so many different owners of them. I can see there's only a thousand of them. If they were to have a thousand and one created, I'd see that, right? I'd see that it was generated at a completely different date and that it wasn't part of the same initial batch. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It would actually kind of become like, you know, like comic books where it's like, oh, these are the first edition ones. And then they created them again. And these are the second edition ones. So that, that idea of provable, provable scarcity uh, is, is much different than this current situation where game developers are kind of their own central banks and they kind of do things in this non-transparent way. Um, and I don't want to have to, you know, contact uh, Epic Games or Blizzard to be like, hey, was this really owned by you know, by, by Ninja and, and like have them, you know, have to tell me or have to rely on, you know, their centralized database. It, it's just better to be able to have it be publicly verifiable how many were created and, and who owns them at what point. And so that's, that's provable scarcity. And then the, the last major tenant uh, of the, the use cases I like to uh, talk about is uh, going back to extensibility. So extensibility of the games as it relates to NFTs is this idea of secondary market trading. 
So um, when you trade, when you have secondary market trading, like you have in some, you know, Web two games, um, you you can sell games, you can sell assets in perpetuity, right? Forever, I can you can keep selling the same, you know, skins that that were around ten years ago in in CS:GO, and with this concept of doing it through smart contracts, you can have built-in revenue share. This can be for the developers. This can be for the esports teams that and the influencers that lend their likeness to to these skins, and um, and you can generate secondary market trading fees in in perpetuity, right? So if Pokimane, uh, you know, had a skin in Fortnite, and it was let's say they introduced a limited run of uh, of NFT skins, or you know, I, I think a lot of teams are now calling them digital collectibles, which is probably uh, a good rebranding. We'll get into that in a second about uh, some of the the pessimism around NFTs, but uh, to be able to have the game developer earn a fee for you know years to come, and the influencer, maybe even her agent, you can have that all programmatically built in to a marketplace, and they can get paid out every day, right? It doesn't have to be you know that ninety-day invoice cycle, and so that's a really big deal. So that's marketplaces as an example of extensibility, but that, that applies to all different types of uh, loan, you know, loan platforms, different types of financial services, like you see with guilds. So guilds are a huge part of, of the play to earn phenomenon where not all players can afford some of these assets, right? Some of them are very, very expensive. And so guilds come in, they purchase the assets and then lend them out. And so now you're starting to see guild, uh, guild tech platforms that uh, because they are NFTs and it's, it's blockchain tech, you can build in these loan, these loan programs where they can be loaned for a certain amount of time. There can be that built-in rev share of, hey, use this, you know, powerful uh, axie, and then we'll split, um, you know, the the daily revenue you make. So these are all things that would be very difficult and cumbersome to build into a Web two game when you can just use this technology that's kind of built for it. Amazing. So do you think this is kind of, you know, the trend that we're going to see more, you know, game developers and esports teams kind of embracing this? I think so. I think 100 Thieves had a really incredible um, use case. So um, this was a couple of weeks ago. They released a, a digital collectible, I believe it was of like a, a necklace, and they had given the physical version of the necklace to some of the players when uh, when they won the uh, the North American Championship, I believe it was. And of course, you can't send you know a hundred thousand uh, physical necklaces out to all the fans. So they released a completely free to mint uh, digital representation of that that celebrated this achievement. So it it was it was minted on Polygon, which means that there was effectively zero energy consumption. Right, a lot of the energy consumption misconceptions um, are, are kind of, they're, they're, they're misunderstandings. They're, Bitcoin extremely has a lot of energy consumptions, that's for sure. But like I said, all of this stuff is going on on Ethereum and all of these other um, you know, proof of stake, proof of authority blockchains that don't use energy consumption. And Ethereum itself has been in a multi-year transition from proof of work, which consumes a lot of energy, to proof of stake, where it's going to consume 99.5% less energy than it does today. And so uh, I loved how they approached it, right? They, they didn't call it an NFT. They called it a digital collectible. Uh, anyone could get it, right? It was not walled behind some expensive price. 
and uh, and it was it was free from any energy usage to to mint. So I think you're going to see a lot more experiments like that from from esports teams and uh, and from game developers, right? I can imagine like a Riot or a Blizzard or an Epic saying uh, at the end of their championship series, minting uh, NFT trophies, right? Kind of similar in, in that sense to what Hundred Thieves did. And so that trophy would come along with a lot of metadata, right? When it was uh, won, which team, you know, which player was the MVP. You can even include like clips of like the final play. And, and I think that's a really cool uh, kind of low-hanging fruit use case that doesn't have a lot of controversy around it, right? It's just, it's just fan memorabilia, fan engagement. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot more esports teams do that. Definitely. So shifting a little bit. So what advice do you have for anyone trying to work in the esports and the gaming business? What advice? So when we got started with CGNY, um, it was it was heavily volunteer based, and and so we had some we had so many incredible volunteers over the years, and you know now that we're um, now that we're funded and we're a larger company, uh, we've actually went on to to hire a lot of those those uh, early volunteers. So I, I guess my first bit of advice would be to you know really get involved, right? Go go volunteer at in-person events. Now that in-person events are coming back, go to these networking meetups, these conferences, if you can afford to go to them and, and just like, you know, put yourself there, put get, get in front of uh, the people that, that you want to work with. And whether it's an internship volunteer basis, um, uh, it could be as simple as graphic designers, right? We work with so many graphic designers. And so there's a lot of transferable skills in kind of like STEM in general that that really relate to um, what what big esports teams and uh, esports companies in general uh, need. So, for instance, we we run we ran over two hundred events last year in twenty twenty one, and that and not all of them were streamed, but a lot of them were streamed. And so, you have a large stream event, even if it's a thousand dollar prize pool. You need admins, you need graphic designers, you need community managers, you need producers, you need casters. Right. There's so much that that goes into uh, running a successful event that's streamed that um, that you can get involved that way. And then as you look to pursue a full time career, um, they'll you know, they'll remember that you were uh, you were dedicated and you helped them out a lot. So I'd say that's a great way and, and a way that I can give as a personal example. Of, uh, we went on to uh, to hire a lot of people that that were uh, helping us out early on. Absolutely. I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people kind of say, and, you know, I echo the same sentiment. It's like, if you want to get involved, get involved, you know, however you can, any way you can, as you know, I think your example earlier about, you know, going to the Bitcoin center and you just wanted to be around and involved and you volunteered your time. And, you know, years later, the opportunities you learn from there are impacting you now. So it's just really interesting to see that. And I think everyone needs to kind of realize that, that you kind of have to put yourself out there and try and, you know, worst comes happens, you succeed. Yeah. So what's your favorite part about working in the esports and gaming space? Favorite part. Um, it's gotta be the community. It's gotta be interacting with so many different people. And I'm glad that we're, you know, in, in person events are getting back up and running for us and for you know other everyone around the world and i always love i always attend all of our our major in-person events and i love just hanging out with people meeting them you know playing games with them obviously either in person or online and and just getting to know the community not just here in new york but as as we start doing events uh, all over the place 
Um, you know, I'm going to be traveling to Latin America for some of our events down there. So uh, I think it's the community and it's, it's also just so fantastic to see how ingrained like gaming culture has, has become, right. It used to be this kind of stigma that it was a waste of time and now clearly it's not right. Uh, You can, you can, you can make a career out of it from first it was streaming and content creation on YouTube. Uh, then it became, you know, all of these esports teams that, that are working with so many different uh, professional, professional athletes, professional gamers. And now with play to earn, it's kind of uh, this model I've been saying is earnings for everyone, right? So it's not just the most highly skilled and, and the most popular people that can, that can um, earn a living or earn supplemental income through the gaming industry, it's, it's anyone, it's anyone that has a, uh, you know, an Android phone or, um, has an internet connection. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm just, that's my favorite part about it, that it's just become so ubiquitous and, and the stigmas have kind of slowly gone away and people really, really respect it now. Definitely. So, you know, to kind of bring it all together, what's the future for community gaming and, you know, for NFTs and crypto in the gaming space? So the future for us in the short term is um, we're going to be doing a lot of a lot of hiring and a lot of expansion, and um, not just in North America where most most of our our team is based, but in South America across all of Latin America and uh, places in Southeast Asia like the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Singapore, and um, one thing that I mentioned that I really kind of want to touch on is this idea that this concept of being able to earn supplemental income through gaming is now an opportunity for the masses. And we want to be not just, you know, the 10th tournament platform out there. We're really going to evolve into this earnings platform that is not just the most highly skilled people coming in first, second, and third, earning the lion's share of the money. There's nothing wrong with that. And and tournaments are going to continue to be um, our foundation of the platform, but we're going to be introducing ways that people who don't necessarily have, you know, six hours a day to play in tournaments or uh, are not the most skilled at a certain game, but still love gaming culture and, and, and exploring different games. We're going to be introducing what's called the questing system where players can uh, from all over the world can earn through doing different types of quests, play quest, engage quest and learn quest, the three categories and so um, today, you know, you may, you know, maybe the average player can play in, you know, two tournaments a week, but certainly not every day, right? And so we want to introduce these, uh, these, these kind of bite-sized activities and tasks they can do within the gaming ecosystem where they can earn micro rewards. So a couple of just quick examples of, uh, of, of a learn quest, for instance, I mentioned education is, is, a, is, a, big, is a big focus for us. Uh, there may be a quest to try out a new game and and learn uh, learn how it works, right? Learn, you know, what is USDC, for example? How can I use USDC uh, and earn it and then go pay, you know, go buy groceries with it in Brazil? So you, you'll be able to learn about uh, these different platforms. And an engage quest may be to play one match of a game like Skyweaver, right? Hey, you like Hearthstone? You, you know, you've, you've called out that you like trading card games on your profile. Uh, why don't you try out this new game? play one match and matchmaking earn 50 cents. And so there's all these things they'll be able to do every day on the platform that are not bound just to how skilled they are that they'll be able to earn from. And so we're really excited to, to launch this questing system um, this later this quarter and give a much more 
uh, wider market the ability to earn on our platform. Amazing. So I definitely, you know, I'm excited to see that. I think, you know, gamifying the game and being able to earn rewards that could actually be real currency and, you know, money in your pocket is definitely revolutionary. So we'll see how widely adopted and how successful it goes. Yes. Thank you so much, Justin. I really, really appreciate you inviting me on and all your thoughtful questions. My pleasure. So, you know, I like to end each episode with my three questions. So what's your favorite game to watch? Valorant? Probably Valorant. Um, I was playing so much Valorant in earlier in 2021 before fundraising sucked up all my time. So I haven't been able to play since the new agent came out, but I love watching, you know, Hundred Thieves, um, Shroud, Pokemon. I love uh, watching them play Valorant. Amazing. So what's your favorite game to play? Lately, it's been Skyweaver. I, I've, I'm a huge um, TCG fan and player. And so, you know, I played Hearthstone for so long. I was excited about Artifact, but that, that died a horrible death. Uh, Skyweaver, and, you know, I've, I've been playing Magic the Gathering, uh, Paper Magic for a long time. Uh, so Skyweaver is really just an incredible AAA, you know, I can really say that with confidence, a AAA quality game that's, that's blockchain enabled. And I've been, it's been a suck uh, it's been sucking up a lot of my my free time lately. Amazing. Who's your favorite video game character? My favorite video game character? Probably Master Chief. I'm excited for the new Halo uh, TV show that I, I saw is coming out soon. So, yeah, I'd probably say Master Chief. Awesome. So, you know, thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely insightful. I'm sure everyone out there has definitely, you know, learned a lot more. I know I did. So tell everyone where they can connect with you and, you know, see what you're working on. So the platform is communitygaming.io. We are at Community Gaming on Twitter. I'm at Crypto Gaming on Twitter. And yeah, please reach out to us. If you're, if you're a tournament organizer that's looking for a new place to host your tournaments, we provide a lot of grants and support um, through our, our foundation. Um, if you're a brand that wants to reach more gamers, um, whether you're a, a blockchain gaming platform or, or just a gaming brand we'd love to work with you and uh look out for our questing system launching later this quarter awesome so you know thanks everybody again for tuning in and make sure to follow me on twitter justin jesq check apple Podcasts for all our past episodes